In this interview, I'm once again joined by Tibetologist, author, and Tantric Buddhist Lama, Glenn Mullen. Glenn takes a deep dive into the use of Yidam, or meditation deities, in Buddhist Tantra, including the role of personal preference, karmic coincidence, and divination in choosing the right Yidam for you. Glenn reveals his own primary Yidam practice and details the unusual experiences around his initiation, as well as the effects of the Yidam practice over his lifetime. Glenn also explains the use of ritual instruments, mudra, and choreographed hand gestures in tantric practice, and discusses what it means to become an accomplished practitioner of these disciplines. So without further ado, Lama Glenn Mullen. Glenn Mullen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. So last episode, we took a tour through the classification systems of Buddhist Tantra. And in particular, I dived into the details of Kriya Tantra. Uh And you mentioned many interesting points in that interview that I'd like to follow up on. In your book, From the Heart of Chenrezig, Dalai Lama's on Tantra, you quote the 13th Dalai Lama on the three uh, Kriya Tantra families as saying, one should enter into whichever of these is suitable to one's personal karmic predispositions. And you've said in previous interviews that practitioners will often be initiated into several of these systems uh, with their various yidams and may well practice them concurrently. For instance, practicing a consort version of Chakrasamvara during formal practice, but walking around, so to speak, as Chen Rezig or Green Tara, or that the various different practices can be subsumed into one, where one just performs one's main practice and all the other initiations are taken to be subsumed into that. I'm curious, sometimes it seems the teacher will assign a particular deity to a student, particular tantra. Other times one proceeds through a sort of curriculum according to the school or cycle of teaching or whatever empowerment's going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about that word yidam and what it means to, as some people will say, have a yidam? Do people have favorite yidams? <laughs> I know you've said your main practice is yamantaka, for example. And also, can you explain the basis on which a teacher assigns a particular yidam practice to a student? Is it based on a personality match or association with a particular practice in that way? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful avenue of exploration because it really. In, we, we see the Yidam phenomena reflected in the practices of every um, initiate into Tantric Buddhism or Himalayan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. The word the expression in Tibetan, Loma Gilegi Wampaletene, based upon the based upon the Legi Wangpo, the karmic predispositions of the trainee, that expression is used quite often, which would indicate, it's meant to suggest that if we speak of Kriya Tantra of these three families, sometimes they're made, there's one is, one becomes the compassion family, another the wisdom family, and the other the power family. Uh, known in Tibetan, uh, known in India as the Lotus family, the, which is representative of the, of, the, of the compassion family. The wheel family, which is uh, representative of the wisdom family of, of Yidams, and then the power family, Vajra or Dorje. 
And those are our three essential natures of enlightenment. In other words, for me to go to from a country bumpkin trained in the coarse, gross arts of engineering <laughs> to, to the sublime inner phenomenon, and engineering being purely a, a manipulation of outer phenomena with you know, you can be a completely evil person and still be a brilliant engineer. It's got nothing to do with inner reality. So, so to go from outer engineering to inner engineering and come out a Buddha, a living enlightened being, <laughs> a Mr. or Ms. Perfect, <laughs> one essentially has to become complete in compassion, complete in wisdom, and complete in Power. Now, power in English is kind of a scary word just because we think of it like Hitler power, Stalin power, uh, evil dictator, she, China's evil, 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 evil dictator, she has power. <laughs> CIA power. We think of it as a kind of a dark force. But here, power really means the power to bring compassion and wisdom into every act of your life. It's not just like you're a compassionate person, but you can effectively be compassionate in a maximally effectively compassionate in every system, every situation. Not only kind of a intellectual wisdom or a, on your meditation cushion wisdom, but a kind of a, a very present active, forceful, powerful wisdom, which can always find the perfect manner of expression, regardless of whether you're in the middle of traffic jam or in a, in a, in a, you went, your relatives drug you to a boring soccer match and a big, um, what do you call it? Riot broke out and people are like all punching each other. You can still be fully compassionate. Your wisdom is undisturbed by fear or anger or uh, whatever, you can maintain perfect presence of compassion and wisdom. Power is referring to that. So how do we have these three in perfect um, balance, you could say, within oneself? And so Lake Wampo, Loma Lake Wampo Latene, based upon the karmic predispositions of the, the trainee or the disciple, the hierophant, <laughs> uh, the meaning is, I think some of us tend to, some people tend to have a little bit more of an emotional edge, which perhaps uh, would indicate um, Lotus family or compassion family. Doesn't mean they have to develop less wisdom or less power. It's just that this is the tip of the spear of their practice. So those beings will emphasize, say, Avalokiteshvara, Buddha of compassion, or Tara, Buddha of compassionate activity, Amitayas, um, Buddha of um, radiant life power. <laughs> but at the same time, they equally have to develop wisdom and power. In other words, ability to bring the compassion and the wisdom into full uh, engagement in every situation. Uh, so ideally, it's said the, 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 the trainee should 
receive whatever is most in accord with his or her essential nature. And this is said in Kriya Tantra, and I believe also in Charya, but anyway, that we're just quoting the 13th Dalai Lama here on Kriya, in which they talk about these Rigsungampo, the lords of the three families. And so in the lords of the three families, which is a famous Bodhisattva Trinity or Yidam Trinity in uh, all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, we see Shenrazi representing compassion, Manjushri representing wisdom, and Vajrapani representing power. And uh, so therefore, these are kind of the three main forces, you could say, at work in the enlightenment process. All the meditations geared to increasing our love, compassion, and so on. But of course, blind love and compassion are, are often just as harmful as uh, anger and hatred, simply because when uh, compassion is misdirected, it can be very harmful. For instance, if we take the witch hunts of uh, feudal Europe, often uh, the peoples being and the so-called inquisitions, uh, the Italian and Spanish inquisitions, often the people being tortured for having heretical views that was being done out of compassion. The belief by the torturers was that if you didn't believe that Christ was the one and only savior of mankind, et cetera, et cetera, then you were going to hell. So obviously the compassionate thing to do is to elevate your view of Christ, correct your view of Christ. If you thought, well, we should like still can continue to maintain a kind of European, you know, British or Western European use of herbs and herbs and whatnot for healing, then obviously rather than just use the standard Roman ones uh, dictated by the Roman church, and obviously you're a witch, we can torture you out of compassion to help you out of your witchedness. <laughs> so I think uh, compassion by itself without wisdom is almost as dangerous, sometimes more dangerous than anger or hatred, because at least we can tell anger or hatred what it is, for what it is. Uh, it's, it's more obvious. So compassion is very dangerous, like uh, I believe it's Chandra Kirti puts it in one of his writings that uh, compassion is like the legs carrying us around toward enlightenment, but wisdom are like the eyes. And without the eyes telling the legs where to walk, we can easily harm ourselves and others. So we need the legs, we need the eyes, and thirdly, we need the heart. <laughs> the courage, the power to always be true to our compassion and our wisdom and to face whatever obstacles arise with great courage, with great uh, confidence, with great strength. So there, I think, the word for power in Tibetan often uh, used is nupa, which means ability. I can do, kind of a can-do kind of a thing. <laughs> I can do that. I can be compassionate. I can, I can always hold to my wisdom. So you could say it's kind of a fluency of heart in the, in the exp, ex, ex, expression of compassion and wisdom.
Now, as for the question of what, how does one know what is one's legi wangpo, what is one's karmic predispositions? Uh, that's really a kind of a open question, I think. Um, I think in the Tibetan world, one tends, most students tend to do what their teachers do. Uh, so uh, if, like for instance, when I met previous Kalu Rinpoche, I think it was winter of 72 or winter of 73, something like 1973. Some of you were there in your previous life, I'm sure. Uh, probably as some of the some dogs, uh, mangy dogs lying out in the sand outside, but because you happen to be reborn as a dog in Bagaya, now you've made it up to human status. Some of you perhaps as fleas on those dogs. <laughs> perhaps some of you as a bed bug who bit me in one of those Tibetan tent cities put up. <laughs> and that brought you into a human rebirth. The mer merit being a flea or a bedbug in a previous life who bit Glenn when he was receiving Shenrezi or Yamantaka or Kalachakra. <laughs> but so there, Legi Wangpo, the power of karma, meaning more to what brought you to meet that teacher. So, for instance, Kala Rinpoche gave Shenrezi to everyone he met. He basically was a Shenrezi guy, Buddha of compassion guy. So wherever he went, he always gave the Tongteng Gyalpo lineage of Shenrezi and gave the Sarano to people for daily practice and so on. So we could say there, the karmic predisposition of the student is sort of whom one has the karma to meet. Now, for me later, so I met, of course, Kalarimich at that time, I received Shenrezi. I didn't have any kind of special feeling or dreams or sense of transformation from it. I mean, I enjoyed meeting Kalarimich and I thought, you know, I enjoyed his teaching and I felt, you know, honored to receive that lineage and whatnot. And I still teach it a lot. But, uh, Roughly at that same time, I received Yamantaka from the great Kyoji Ling Doji Chang, the great tutor, the great guru of the present Dalai Lama, the main guru of great Dalai Lama, you could say, present Dalai Lama. And at the night of that empowerment, all night I just dreamed of millions and billions of Yamantaka mandalas flying through the universe and falling into my body, my sleeping body, like falling stars plummeting into a cool lake. And uh, as waves and waves of them fell into my body, I just felt greater and greater bliss and greater and greater upliftment, you could say, until just before dawn in my dream, I dreamed I achieved enlightenment. <laughs> and so, you know, it was only a dream enlightenment. I woke up and I wasn't like a, fully enlightened being, <laughs> but it wasn't disappointing, I, nor was I expecting it to be so, I could say, but I did feel a profound shift in my whole, my whole uh, universe, you could say, 
And so my Legi Wangpo, obviously my karmic connection was more with Nkebji Ling Doji Chang and Yamantaka practice than it was with Kala Rinpoche and Shenrazi practice. But until today, I have given that Shenrazi initiation probably a hundred times to groups around the world and taught that Shenrazi um, sadhana imparted by Kala Rinpoche at that time. And um, I consider it very, very important practice. But in terms of my main yidam, it came, to, that really came mainly deep, based on the very strong uh, psychic experiences that followed the empowerment. And then uh, it, after the empowerment, Kipchi Ling Doji Chang asked Sopa Rinpoche, the very young Tubden Sopa, founder of the FP and Lama Yeshe founding FBMT to give us the basic practice teaching. And again, it was a very simple teaching, but completely spectacular in how it impacted me. So for me, that obviously was a very, very important practice. Now, later I received many other empowerments from Kyoji Trijong Rinpoche and Dalai Lama Gyawa Rinpoche, the Dalai Lama and uh, Sakya Trizen, and, you know, Dilgo Kenze Rinpoche, Trulshik Rinpoche, and Lamas of all different schools. and. Rikon Chitsang Rinpoche, and so on. But nothing ever really impacted me in the same world-transforming, earth-shaking earth manner <laughs> of the Yamataka. So I think, to me, that indicated Legi Wangpo, <laughs> what the 13th Dalai Lama meant by karmic predisposition, some sort of strong karmic connection with that practice. And of course, from the moment I started doing the practice, I could feel very strong results, very strong effects on my every aspect of my life, not just my inner life, but my whole experience of all things. So I think Ligi Wangpo is talking about something like that. Now, I, I do know people who have read this kind of statement or heard this kind of statement, and they'll go to a Lama and they'll ask for a divination, a mo, or chakmo as Tibetans call it, the throwing of the dice, clink. And they'll say, would you tell me what is my main yidam? And the Lama will take his dice and he will go, jodam, Oh, I'm sorry, but you just aren't up to any tantric practice. You just better concentrate on morality for the rest of this life. <laughs> or he might say, Chakrasambara or Vajrakini or wherever. But I never did that. <clears throat> uh, and in uh, Dalai Lama school, that's not so common. Mostly what's common in Dalai Lama school, I think, is the karmic coincidence factor. And then as one practices, one will notice oneself what is a very, has the most impact. So in my own case, for instance, I probably in the early, that first decade of my training received, I don't know, 15 or 20 or more empowerment but nothing ever even came close to my 
Yamantaka experience. And uh, I still do the other practices for the wonderful features in them. And probably my next favorite is Chakra Samvara and other as Tubulanga, the Gantapada lineage of five Dakinis. Or I also very much like the, but the Pamtingpa brothers lineage coming through Nepal that comes into the Sakya and then from the Sakya spreads to Shalu and the, from the Shalu who are famous for having lamas with very big mouths <laughs> spread to everyone. <laughs> Before these lineages went to Shalu Monastery, often they were held very secretly by their own schools. All Kargyu lineages were, they tried to hold them in their own school and uh, Sakya the same and uh, with all the different lineages. But when they came to Shalu, Uttan Rinchen Truba lifted the lid off. And he said he was doing it because of fulfillment of prophecy. Other people scolded him a little bit for being too open with Tantra. But uh, because of his lifting the lid off today, we see many, many lineages that came to India in specific lines of transmission and were kept within one little school. Uh, but later after Bhutan Rinch and Truba, we can find those lineages in every school from Yingma and Bon through uh, all the different new schools of the uh, Renaissance period of the 11th, 12th centuries up into Galupa and post-Galupa movements and so forth. So myself, I, I regard experiential, experiential data as a stronger indication than asking a Lama for a divination. Problem with Lama with divination is I think Lamas will often tend to push you toward what is their own main yidam. And I'm not sure that's the best way. At least it's not the Dalai Lama school way so much. The Dalai Lama school way is much more focused on individual uh, responsibility of the trainee, of the disciple rather than the ka, which Chogyam uh, Trumpa used to translate as command, the command of the Lama. <laughs> so uh, I prefer that way of one's own experience. Earlier, uh, we talked about the four kinds of Lama, four kinds of guru and guru yoga, the, the guru, which is one's own natural radiance or one's own inner quiet the natural guru, Rangshengi Lama, and then uh, Nyongwe Lama, the Lama, which is one's own experience. So in choosing Yidam and choosing what are your main practices, I think the guru, which is experience, is more, exp is more important than Kagi Lama, the guru of the instruction, or Sawe Lama, the guru that is one's root teacher or living teacher, uh, simply because... Uh, if we look at the chain, one gets, one has many lamas. Most people have many lamas. And uh, especially Western people usually tend to have a dozen or so because lamas travel a lot in modern times. The jet-setting lamas, you could say. <laughs> and uh, each of them has their own kind of vision. And Ka, each of them gives their own instructions. So how do we make sense of it? It's through Nyungwe Lama, the third of the of the line, uh, the guru, which is our own experience. So for me, that has proved the most important in my life. And uh, with my own great teachers, whenever I ask them for advice on these things, very often they would say, 
well, how do you feel about it? Tell me, what's your experience? And that helped me, I think, a lot in my own sense of, of uh, guiding my own ship to enlightenment, you could say. Because, you know, there's not, there's not always someone, someone around to ask for advice. And the instructions as transmitted uh, that one has received might be ambiguous or might not answer a particular issue at a particular time. So it means one's own experience becomes the dominant factor. And through that, hopefully, one will find it find one's way to the inner radiance or the inner light of one's own uh, universal silence nature, <laughs> which is a long answer if you ask me to a question about silence. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. I'm curious, there's a few things there uh, jumping out. You mentioned the spectacular impact, I think you said, of the practice teachings that Lama Zopa gave. I'm curious what those were, what that spectacular impact was. And you also mentioned that the effects of the Yamantaka practice, uh, you notice them quite pervasively in your life, quite quickly. So I'm curious what those effects were and what has the effect been in the unfolding of the practice over the decades since then? Well, in terms of the, the teaching itself, I mean, Lama Zopa at the time was a, you know, a young monk. He's not much older than me, maybe one or two years older. I'm not sure his exact age. And for some reason, even though Lama Tupin Yeshe was at the teaching and spoke better English than Lama Zopa, Kipti Ling Rinpoche assigned him to give us our first Yamanteka teaching. He didn't assign Lama Tupin Yeshe. And uh, I, perhaps because Lama Zopa was very young and uh, Kipti Ling Rinpoche felt it might be a good experience for Lama Zopa to lead this group of half a dozen Western neophytes <laughs> through the, the unexplored territory. I suppose uh, for me, the most deepest impact was uh, came from this idea in highest yoga tantra, Anuttara tantra, of at the beginning, you begin the practice with refuge bodhicitta, in other words, remembering your own Buddha nature, relying upon your Dharma knowledge and noticing that the world is full of um, thriving with people's experienced in practice. And so you're not alone. It's not like you're some new age guy out in the middle of California, out in the desert, trying to figure things out and they reinvent the wheel sort of thing. So there, there are advanced practitioners of all traditions on the world who hold traditional lineages. So that's important. And the bodhicitta effort, my enlightenment to try and make myself a better person so as to be, um, make greater contribution, not only to my own enlightenment, but to, all, to the happiness of the world in general or the peace and prosperity of the world in general, all living beings. So I didn't think that was important. Then the Om Sabha Sobo Washodo Hung Emptiness Mantra, all things pure since the beginning, one dissolves 
just like at the time of death, the world dissolves into light and into your body and your body starts losing power and uh, you can no longer see or hear or smell or taste or touch. One by one, the senses fail and you go into the kind of clear light of death state. So this kind of reenactment or theatrical re theatrical immersion in one's own mortality struck me as very, very, very profound and more powerful than just a kind of an ordinary observation of the impermanent nature of phenomena, which we see, of course, in the sutra tradition. In old days, you know, Buddha would put students in a charnel ground to watch bodies in various states of decomposition. In America, it'll probably, uh, when, you know, when we get a Buddhist president, he'll probably dictate that all coroners have to allow neophyte tantric initiates to go and observe the autopsies. <laughs> and the bodies won't be allowed to be frozen. They'll have, they'll have to sit around getting the smells. <laughs> but anyway, reliving sort of doing a kind of an, a, a, a reified death scene as part of, as the beginning of the sadhana is very, very moving for me and uh, touching to the quintessential nature of being. In other words, when the whole world dissolves, all, you know, all possessions, all power, all social connectivity, all friends and relatives, all into light, into oneself. And how this sort of points out how all everything we experience of life is really just a memory. And uh, that's the only real treasure we gather, our memories. And those memories sit or ride on the inner radiance of our soul. And the way they sit and the way they ride it's almost like you could say the light is shining from behind them, casting shadows uh, on a screen. <laughs> In other words, the way those memories sit on our consciousness, they impact the way we see everything, you know, throwing shadows on this and obscuring that and distorting the other and so on. So it really, right from the beginning of the sadhana, brings the nitty gritty of the, the profound nature of the Buddhist teaching on emptiness or infinity, how nothing exists in the manner of which it appears to us, but rather we distort it based on our own predispositions, our own memories, instincts, uh, conditionings, and so forth. And we dissolve all of that and touch our inner radiance for some time and just sit in that inner radiance. And the emphasis then being, we come out of this radiance in a particular way, not just to like hop out of it like that, but rather when we come out of the radiance to bring a sense of that radiance into our being. And so first we come out as a kind of a Sambhogakaya nature, as it's said in Buddhism, a completely joyful way. So to, so to emerge as kind of a joyful, with a joyful, blissful edge to consciously 
bring joy and bliss into one's presence as one emerges from this formless radiance, you could say. And uh, for me, that was very meaningful, very meaningful how our joy factor, our enjoyment factor can be influenced from inside, not just from what appears. I wake up and I, I won the lottery, so I'm happy. Or I wake up and, you know, there's five beautiful swans in the lake outside my window. I thought I better stick with swans rather than something more intimate. And I look out and I think how beautiful and I feel joyful and radiant. So regardless of what is going on, the ability, our ability to maintain a joyful, blissful presence uh, as being the, the, rea the reality of that as a yoga, the yoga of Sambhogakaya yoga, you could say, uh, yoga of bliss and radi radiant presence and blissful, joyful presence, to, to me, was very, very meaningful. And the Lama Sopa Rinpoche just really explained it in a very experiential way, even though he was just a young guy. I remember when he said it, I can still see it visually. As he said it, he kind of just thought about it for a minute, and he just sort of went like this and stretched, as big as he could stretch. And he's a tiny little guy at that time. You know, he was skinny as a rake, and I don't know, maybe five foot two or something like that. And tiny little guy, he stretched, and he stretched, and he just sort of became this amazingly joyful, very large, joyful bundle of joy kind of a guy. <laughs> and uh, to me, that, that's very meaningful how we have the ability to maintain our connectivity with radiance. And at the same time, we could say formless radiance, being radiant just by yourself with nothing else and no one else taking clear light dharmakaya, as it's called in tantric practice. We can be in clear light, radiant joy just by ourselves, with no walls and no mountains and no, no body and just a sense of infinite spaciousness. At the same time, we can come out of that and connect to the greater world or the world of form, if you will. But bringing the aroma, the fragrance of that radiance and within that fragrance carrying some sense of bliss and joy as consciously maintained factors. So to me, that was very, very meaningful. And then of course, we come out of that as Yamantaka looking a little bit on the tough side and the, you know, big horns and buffalo head and dancing on eight, eight uh, gods and eight, 16 legs dancing and eight gods and eight animals and so on and so forth. And should I mention big erect penis? <laughs> and coming into the ordinary world. So how do we deal with as Nirmanakaya? And he's yelling, ha ha. In other words, fully laughing as he engages the ordinary world of heaven and hell, you could say. And, heaven, hell, and everything in between, being able to 
confront the Darwinian jungle world <laughs> of survival of the fittest while yelling, ha, ha, <laughs> with a roar that fills the 10 directions of the universe. How we can bring that radiance, blissful joy, and playful awareness into all aspects of mundane life. Taking Narmanakaya, blending Narmanakaya, the Narmanakaya, the emanation principle into all aspects of our life. And again, Lama Zopa, although it was a very short teaching on the very short sadhana, <laughs> just did so very simply because he was very young at the time, maybe 25, and didn't have a lot of experience teaching foreigners. He'd only been teaching for a couple of years. and uh, But he did a very, very wonderful, wonderful job of it. And from that time, I really connected to the practice. And I would say, whenever I did the sadhana and whenever I did the mantras, it had a real effect on my whole sense of being, really impacted my whole sense of being. And I would say, uh, you know, Rope Lagi Neljor being the key in generation stage practice, the yoga of being a playful Buddha. As is often stated, the difference between sutra and tantra and sutra's path of causes, we think I'm not that enlightened. I have to cultivate the causes of enlightenment in tantra, the path of the result, trebugilam. There's something already enlightened about me. What I have to do is maintain a connection, a direct phone line. It's a little bit like an ATM card, you could say. You may only have $2 in your pocket, but you can ATM if you're a Steve James with a secret bank account offshore. So with some millions of dollar pounds, oh, sorry, pounds, pounds tucked away, <laughs> perhaps Cayman Island. So <laughs> what is it? The British Virgin Islands have great banking laws. <laughs> so you could say that the sutra path is a little bit like, well, I don't have much money. I better work hard and uh, build up a bank account. And Tantra is more like, well, actually, I may not have much money right now, but I've got an ATM card in my pocket. It's my clear light nature, my natural bliss nature, and my na natural instinct to engage creatively with whatever arises in my environment. These three become the three kayas of Buddhahood. I can link to my natural radiance. I can link to my natural joy, expressions of joy and, uh, and, and be brightness of being, presence of being. And thirdly, whatever arises, I can engage in that with complete creativity. So for me, that aspect of Yamataka was very clear in the practice, made it very easy to engage in um, Yamataka practice and have a, a very strong effect. I sometimes mention that one of my lamas made it even more sort of dynamically powerful for me, the Namgyal Kenza Rinpoche, the abbot of one of Dalai Lama's, of Dalai Lama's Namgyal Trasen for many years and before that of Gyume Tantric College. And, he was again then Changse monk, really, really great lama. 
And he, once when he became one of my teachers, he had me visit and he said, now, Glenn, I want you to practice a very simple thing. You can visit me once a week and give a report. So my instruction to you is never walk by a Tibetan without stopping to talk to them and never let them go until you can make them laugh. <laughs> and I think that was for me, his very direct yamantaka, ha ha. <laughs> Connecting with our radiance is easy. We can just lean back and feel our silence. Connecting with our joy and our, our uh, pleasure of being. Our, play, our, our joyful presence is easy. We can just sort of sit back and connect to a feel-good sensation or a feel-good mode of being. But engaging the particulars of what you encounter in a playful way. I think uh, Nangal Kinzer Rinpoche was really, really very right on when he gave me that instruction. Because making... With you know, with the Western people, of course, humor is part of our culture, but being forced to do that with peoples from every part of Central Asia, because you know we had Kampas and Amdapas and Tupas and Sangpas and uh, Solo Kumbu Everest people, you know, the two hundred kingdoms that made up old Tibet in the federation that was old Tibet, touching being playful with all of them. I would say was, for me, a very important part of my Nirmanakaya expression training. <laughs> so Namgul Kensar always has a very, very special place in my heart for, for forcing me to take that approach. Of course, he said that'll also help you learn Tibetan and improve your Tibetan very quickly because when people, he said, when Tibetans know that you're going to be, be playful and humorful, they'll happily stop and talk to you. Because like Kipje Sung Rinpoche, one of the great uh, bearded lamas of the Dalai Lama school once put it, uh, Indians and Westerners are born from Aryans. In other words, the devas, you know, they're the gods who crash to earth and that's why they're so serious. Chinese are descended from the Nagas, and that's why they're always uh, greedy, chasing money. Mongolians are born from the Asuras, and that's why a Mongolian is only at peace when he's at war. We Tibetans are descended from the monkeys. That's why we're always playful. <laughs> so I think uh, that's sort of a, a standard Tibetan saying, by the way, the uh, origin of the four great races. <laughs> Aryans and foreigners from the Devas, uh, space travelers from another planet, and um, the, the, the Chinese from the, the, the jealous Nagas, <laughs> and the, the Mongols from the Titans, the fighting gods, and Tibetans from the union of the monkey and the abominable snow lady, who, by the way, the monkey did not think was that abominable. <laughs> at the time anyway what is that country song I better not quote country song in a Buddhist teaching why not <laughs> I never went to bed with an ugly woman but I woke up with a few 
<laughs> That's the story of the monkey and the abominable snow lady. <laughs> anyway, Kevjay Sang Rinpoche quoted that old Tibetan saying of the origin of the four main races. And I think Damgal Kenzo Rinpoche was referring to that in the training he gave me as Tibetans, if you're going to be playful, will always stop and talk. If you're going to be serious and ask them, would you give me a language lesson? They'll start yawning and say, oh, I don't know. I'm not very qualified. <laughs> or if you'll try to bribe them, then they'll go along with it, but they're not going to be that successful. If you try to fight with them over it, then you know they'll just sort of clam up and beat you up. <laughs> but playfulness, they'll respond. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why Tibetans are so very playful is because of that aspect of Lopelagi Narjor, the playful Nirmanakaya nature of Yidam practice. The other question you ask, what is a Yidam really? We could say a Yidam is a kind of a symbol of our natural enlightenment. So every Yidam is a med often we translate it as meditation deity or mandala deity. Yi literally means mind in Tibetan dumb supreme, although yi as mind has a da after it, a silent da that turns it e into e. <laughs> but <laughs> sometimes uh, epistemologically, he is connected to mind and dumb supreme. In other words, there's kind of a natural enlightenment quality every living being has, call it Buddha nature or whatever, vision should be rigged, tatakata garb. And we have that. And of course, the problem becomes that even the most evil murderer, rapist, torturer, sadist, and so forth also has it. So the problem becomes how do we connect with it and keep it as the foundation of our conscious presence. So Adolf Hitler had Buddha nature, but at the same time, he had a little bit of an unpleasant edge about him, you could say. <laughs> same with Chairman Mao. Buddha nature, but killed 70 million people and so on. So how do we maintain conscious presence of our natural enlightenment? So Yi Dham is referring to that. We, Buddha created a system of meditation, which we can call mandala meditation, mantra meditation, yidam practice, in which we drop our ordinary sense of self, which is a conditioned sense of self. In other words, we're born in a particular place with a particular race and a particular language and a particular cultural upbringing. We have sort of conditional influences from previous lives, like your last life, you were a mass murderer. This life, you're very violent. Your last life, you were an object of great persecution. This life, you're sort of timid and shy and fearful and so on. So how do we go beyond the cultural conditionings, the karmic multi-lifetime conditionings, our specific time and place, name and form, as it's said in the Wheel of Life, uh, the 12 links of the Wheel of Life. How do we go beyond name and form to our timeless, formless nature? And uh, Yidam practice is talking about that. And uh, so you could say, uh, I, I should say, the tradition does say, 
<laughs> rather than you could say. The tradition does say that Buddha taught sutra yana or ordinary Buddhism as a way of coming to basic grips with one's natural goodness and natural radiance, calming the rough edges, bringing about on the Hinayana level, the base Hina here, meaning the basic level, bringing along some basic self-discipline, some basic meditative concentration, and some basic sense of selflessness or how this the one we think we are is not what we actually are. The self-image we have is a reification, a fiction, a creation of the conceptual mind. That being so, therefore, all things we experience are accordingly distorted. So these three higher trains of shila, samadhi, and prajna, or self-discipline and a meditative concentration and the ability to focus the mind and hold it in one place and the ability to turn that mental focus upon an exploration of the nature of the self and how our sense of self arises after arising as a mere conceptual um, handle of convenience. It comes to become a dictator taking over our life. That's <laughs> so on basic level, doing those three higher trainings combined with, as it's often put, the eight noble eightfold path to bring those three higher trainings into all aspects of our life, both on our cushion and off our cushion as father or mother, child, brother, sister, whatever our lifestyle is into effect in a well-rounded way. And expanding into Mahayana, the six paramita. Well, how do I solve the problems of the world? Easy, stupid. Achieve enlightenment. <laughs> uh, the Bodhisattva being, how do I achieve enlightenment? Well, the six paramitas. And the adornment to that, Tantra. What's the biggest obstacle to enlightenment? Sense of the distorted sense of self, distorted sense of other, distorted sense of what is a mountain, what is a star. And because distorted sense of self is the root, then the yidam practice, rather than deal with everything on the basis of I am this little conceptually reified being, basing my sense of self on a cultural conditioning, education, genetic makeup, and so on, trying to look beyond that. So it's like looking at my natural three kayas, my natural Buddha nature, my natural joy nature, my natural creative nature, these three kayas, being able to bring them into my life fully, merely as a yoga. So yidam practice referring to that. As I uh, mentioned in that book, which you so wonderfully recommend, <laughs> originally came out as the Dalai Lama's on Tantra, and then when Shambhala bought, bought out Snow Lion, Snow Lion closed his doors because the two owners, Sidney Peaburn and Jeff Cox, they got old. <laughs> and it became difficult for them to maintain it in their older age, and also Sidney. That became a delicate health and so on. And he was sort of the powerhouse uh, in many ways from the creative side. And Jeff was the powerhouse from the administrative side. So they decided uh, 
we better retire and leave it in good hands and sold it out to, uh, sold the company to Shambhala. And they re republished the Dalai Lama Santantra as from the heart of Shenrazi, the Dalai Lama Santantra. And it uh, has various Dalai Lamas writing on Tantra in it. And the Dalai Lama often uh, in the third, uh, the 13th Dalai Lama in his guide to the Buddhist Tantras mentions that Tantra is for Wangpo Rab, those of mature karmic predisposition. In other words, one should have the, the three higher trainings of Hinayana or basic training and the six paramitas of Mahayana, the two bodhicittas of general Mahayana as foundations, then highest yoga tantra or then tantra in general, yidam practice becomes meaningful. Otherwise, one will not have the meditation power to maintain that focus, nor will one have the natural compassion and uh, relaxation. Compassion from the relative bodhicitta training and relaxation from the emptiness training. One will not have that sufficiently to be able to play the wild screaming guitar solos in the midst of a wild, wild, wild night in a hot, sweaty, smoky blues bar <laughs> of one's life when you're a father with seven kids, all of them screaming and a wife grumbling and or a wife with seven kids screaming and a husband shouting at you or whatever, how to keep it all together in those intense situations. You need the, the basic trainings. And in those other books uh, by the other Dalai Lamas in that collection, the first Dalai Lama on Kala Chakra, and uh, I think second Dalai Lama on the Niguma Yogas, and seventh Dalai Lama Chakra Samvara, second Dalai Lama, I think, on uh, Yamataka and so on. They all, they all mention universally the practicing Tantra without the foundations of the two sutra vehicles, Shravaka Yana and uh, General Mahayana Bodhisattva Yana is rarely effective. Certain cases it can be, but usually not in most cases. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. What does it mean to accomplish a practice? It's something that one often hears and one of the prerequisites uh, you've said previously in previous conversations uh, to teach uh, a practice is one thing, of course, to receive an initiation or receive a practice. Another, another thing, again, to teach it. And one of the prerequisites is said to be accomplishing it. But uh, in that context, in the context of, of these tantras that we're discussing, what does it mean to accomplish a practice? Uh, well, in Tibetan, the word trupa is used for is used both for doing a practice what is your, you know, like for instance, a sadhana is called a, a trub tub, an accomplishing or a practice method. Gom day trub tub in Tibetan, a gom is meditation, day recitation, trub, practice, tub, method. But trub is often used also for, to mean accomplishment. So it can be as, pa as a present continuous, we could say, perhaps, <laughs> although the Tibetan language doesn't necessarily in always indicate it that way, but just uh, metaphorically, we could say as a present continuous, it's more referring to our practice. 
and as uh, in terms of maturity, when that practice brings specific results, then it's some kind of accomplishment. Uh, in sutra, accomplishment is determined by maturity in the three higher trainings, discipline, samadhi, and prajna. So samadhi is often measured in the four levels of form samadhi and the four levels of formless samadhi. <laughs> and if we don't get to any of those four and four, then we're still basic samadhi, which is in the realm of sensuality. So, so in, if we look at the sort of Abhidharma teaching or metaphysical idea of the universe from pre-Buddhist India, the world is divided into the, the realm in which sensu sensuality dominates. And then the realm in which we have a deep enough meditation that we cut off ordinary sensuality and move into the realm of pure form. And where we can even cut off that and move into the realm of formlessness. Now, in the general idea of reincarnation, if we die with our mind still in the realm only of limited to sensuality, so it's not that we ever leave sensuality, but we just have to say limited to sensuality. So we have no real power to access the realm of form or form, pure form or form, uh, formlessness. Then we're reborn in any of the six realms based on our sensual karmic flow. If our sensuality is geared towards anger, hatred, and violence, we're reborn in the hells. We die and we leave the body and we think, oh, beautiful, clear light. And there old Fritz shows up, our old German enemy from a time we traveled through Germany and had an argument over the, which type of bear we should order. <laughs> he shows up and we get angry. You made us, you won the arm wrestle and you made us buy the wrong bear. <laughs> so then that sensual response is violence. I think I'll punch Fritz in the nose. And we take a punch at his nose and we fall over the bardo into the hell realms. And we get to fight with Fritz for a few thousand years until we come back out. Or we, instead of remembering the argument with Fritz, we remember our attachment to our brand of bear and we won the thing. And then we remember, we see Fritz and we remember winning that bear. An attachment to that particular brand of bear arises and we fall out of the bardo into the ghost realms. <laughs> or we remember Fritz and uh, we can't remember what it was all out and a kind of a general cloudiness appears. And we fall out of the bardo into the animal realm. And we remember Fritz and we remember our commitment to our deeper humanity in the discussion. And both Fritz and I take rebirths as humans. <laughs> or he won and I just remember feeling jealous about it in Asanasora. <laughs> or I won and I remember feeling proud and narcissistic about it and uh, rather than angry and so on. And I take rebirth as a devil. So we take rebirth in the six realms based on us uh, being stuck 
in the realm of sensuality. And in the bardo, we circle through uh, sensual memories, a reliving of our lifetime memories, and whatever arises stimulates some kind of one of the six cliches, as it's put in one of the Karmapas uh, commentaries, one of the early Karmapas. I think it was the eighth Karmapa, if I remember correctly, but it could have been the fourth. And uh, that brings six cliches, bringing one of the six realms, rebirth. So sensual consciousness has that downside. And then if we are in the realm of form, pure form, but we don't touch to uh, non-self, the wisdom of emptiness or non-self. And we're stuck in one of those samadhis when we die. We're stuck there and we enter the bardo with that samadhi. And we get stuck into one of the 17 samadhi realms or pure form realms. But a worldly form nonetheless and without understanding of emptiness. So we stay there for a few eons. Pleasant, it might be. <laughs> but eventually the karma wears out and the samadhi wears thin and down we plummet. Uh, go back to go. Do not pass. Whatever. Do not collect $200. <laughs> Trying to remember my old um, monopoly childhood days. Or in the realm of formlessness, we die in the meditation, in the realm of pure of formlessness, but don't have realization yet of emptiness, of self-emptiness, of phenomena. And we get stuck in the realm of formlessness and remain there for some eons, however long an eon is, whether you spell it E-O-N or A-E-O-N, it's the same length of time. <laughs> So the, the idea being something like that, and so we try to develop the yidam practice to, to mitigate, you could say, the influence of the klesha, the six klesha, to keep us in a more godly state of mind, <laughs> a more sacred or divine state of mind. Therefore, the, the practice is often known as rope lakinaucho, the deity yoga, just lucky Nagar for short, deity yoga or sacred, the yoga of the yoga of being a, a sacred or a divine being. Try to connect to that, to maintain to that, and then to pursue that to the full enlightenment. I'd like to pivot uh, and ask you about another aspect of tantric practice. That is the uh, use of ritual instruments, but also the use of choreographed hand gestures and mudra. Some mudras are held in stillness, various kinds held in stillness, but there's also kind of choreographed um, hand movements that one sees tantric practitioners doing. Um, can you explain something about the meaning of both the still versions and the choreographed moving versions, the meaning and function of those? Mm -hmm. Well, um... I'll take the first part of your question first about ritual instruments and mudras, because they're kind of interconnected, I would say. You know, one aspect of Tantra is that unlike Sutra, which uh, puts an emphasis on a sort of detachment from the world and from sensual activity, Tantra tries to look more upon our 
outer, inner, and secret aspects of our life as being profoundly interconnected. And therefore, in the practice of Tantra, trying to use the objects of the senses for uh, meditative enhancement, if you will, or yogic enhancement. And therefore, when we do a basic, now, of course, we'll do in completion stage, we'll often won't do that, we'll, or in associated with Tantra, we'll do, a, when we do a Kusam Lam Kher, we're taking three Kayas, when we go into a Dharmakaya, there's no musical instruments used, and there's no hand gestures or anything like that used. Similarly, when we go into taking Sambhogakaya, taking um, the bardo as Sambhogakaya, taking clear light as Dharmakaya, taking bardo as Sambhogakaya, we don't use much um, ritual instrumentation. Uh, so that's largely used in taking Nirmanakaya as the path. In other words, taking rebirth as Nirmanakaya, bringing Nirmanakaya into our rebirth. What does rebirth mean? Being in this body, in this world, right? Bardo means being between something. And clear light means being in a world of infinite radiance with no sense of self and other, this and that. So when we have a body, we come into the world taking rebirth as Nirmanakaya, this body I have is a kind of Nirmanakaya. The world around me is a kind of Nirmanakaya experience, something like that. And so then, rather than detach from the objects of sight, smell, taste, touch, and so forth, how do I engage them as objects of meditation? So Tantra on the generation stage works with that very much. And uh, certainly in the, in the aspects of the beginning sections, when we do things like bless the outer offerings and the inner offerings, and then make the outer offerings and inner offerings, sometimes torma offerings. What does that mean? To practice Tantra well, we need two things. We need a, a wave of, of punya, good karma, <laughs> merit. <laughs> we talk about the path to, all Buddhism talks about the path to enlightenment as twofold. The Sogni, they're known as in Tibetan, the two collections, the collection of Punya and the collection of Pranya. So collection, I know, so Sok means gathering, but we could also say build up or reinforcement. Reinforcing one's natural positivity, <laughs> you could say, and reinforcing one's awareness of nothing is what it appears, the illusory nature, reinforcing those two. So as a preliminary in the sadhana, we might do some blessing of offering and making of offering in a ritualistic way, because we're doing it on our meditation cushion. So I will call the lineage of gurus surrounded by all the yidams and so on and so forth. That might, I think all, all things, ergum, handa, pushpe, dupe, haluke, gende, nevinde, shapte. And we offer prachits on soha. So I hold up 
water for the feet, water for the mouth, oil for the heart. So these are like offerings of all things. You could say everything past, water for the feet. Uh, all of our past we're putting as an offering. It includes sort of the dirty, muddy places you walk through because you can't really just leave them behind. They also become part of your offering, don't they? Uh, water for the mouth, everything you've ever said is sort of like a lingering after flavor. Like if you, this one guy in one of the British Dharma centers used to eat a lot of garlic, raw garlic. Nobody ever told him that raw garlic should only be ever be used as an emana or a, or a suppository. <laughs> so we'd walk around breathing uh, a very rough aroma. So in the same way, everything we've ever said is a kind of a karmic after flavor of our, our life. And the oil for the heart, all of our thoughts, our angers and our tastes our jealousies, as well as our love and compassion and so forth. So this is what we have to offer for uh, to the lineage gurus, to the Buddhism bodhisattvas of the 10 directions. If we want to go to enlightenment, this is what we have to offer. And uh, everything good, bad, and indifferent is there on the offering plate, you could say. And by taking this, and often we'll then we'll do the mantra, Oma, Hung, Oma, Hung, three times. Hung purifies it of all of its negativity. So you just came in walking through the yak field behind the temple and you stepped in four or five turds of yak poo as you came. Hung purifies it of all negativities, <laughs> color, smell, and <laughs> so on. Ah, transforms it into pure nectar. Om causes it to become a vast ocean of healing nectar. So this has two qualities to it, two aspects, and these are connected to the Sogni, the two collections, aren't they? The collection or reinforcement of one's natural goodness. It may be yak poo or dog poo that we have on our shoes, but it's part of the universal material, which also has emptiness and essential goodness. It's only negative in a particular context. And when we use it and recycle it as fertilizer, it becomes a lotus in the lotus pond. Lotus ponds in India, usually about the natural ones at the bottom of hills and valleys and you know, dog poo, bird poo, squirrel poo, human poo all wash into them and turn into lotuses. So the hung sort of has, has, has that effect. Ah, turns into a dutsi. Heals, heals all maras. Du is mara, evil or devil. Si is medicine. Becomes a medicine healing all ills. And, you know, remember in India, the sort of four classic maras. One of them, mara, which is klesha, your delusions of your anger, your hatred, it heals all of those and so on. And the, the mara of your skandhas, the way everything of form, feeling, and so on, can be a distorting influence or a distracting influence, a dark influence, but can also be transformed into a positive influence. So it's C, it becomes a C, healing the four maras, you could say. And then, um, then we always begin the practice with uh, of each of those offering cycles with Om Sobo Vaishodo Sarvada Sobo Vaishodo Ham, the mantra of emptiness. Everything is pure since the beginning. So in that way, the offering rituals connect 
to both the natural goodness of being and to the emptiness nature of being, and they contribute to both sunam gitsok, the accumulation of goodness or the reinforcement of the natural goodness of being and the reinforcement of the wisdom quality, the universal emptiness or infinity nature and awareness of that as a wisdom and it has to be an awareness of that. And then when we do that offering ritualistically, I think engaging the body sort of brings a kind of a we, we often they say Tenzin Ngarang Chakya. Meditation, there's the thought. Ngak, there's the mantra, the voice. Chakya, there's the mudra, the physical. So we bring body, speech, mind, bring those three simultaneously into a kind of an engaged focus, you could say, into the yoga, if you wish, yoga here, meaning a connecting to the authentic nature, into the om, the ah, the hung, the the, the, the natural purity of Hung, the Ah, the natural uh, nectar, wisdom quality, and Om, the vast, infinite. Uh, how emptiness means even the smallest thing is, was it William Blake, the entire universe? <laughs> In a drop of water on a blade of grass, <laughs> something like that. So uh, bringing our whole body, speech, mind into our sadhana uh, rather than just a visualization. As for the arms and the mudras, I think there's a, there's a sort of a belief that hands and feet kind of represent the entirety. Oh, I better put both on the hands and feet. Like this, you see, oh, let me frame correctly. There we are. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Ah, there we are. <laughs> the hands of our, our hands sort of connect to our whole body energetically, as do our feet. So it's more difficult in meditation to move your feet while you're seated by your meditation. But we can also have foot, foot mudras as we have in, you know, Dakini dances, Lama dances, and so forth. There's also very precise foot mood movements. So here, I think when we move the hands in particular ways, like that, it has a kind of a natural, shall we say, acupunctury <laughs> energy flow that stimulates all the points of the body. I really think that's a, that's a part of the equation. When we used, when I used to organize Lama tours of the West. And we go through a hundred cities with various monks from various monasteries as sort of a spread the Dharma for world peace kind of idea. Spread the Dharma through art and culture rather than through um, sort of um, intellectual knowledge of Dharma through the basic feeling and artistic tone of Dharma. And uh, to sort of increase awareness of Tibet situation, and also to raise funds for the refugee monasteries in India. But if we had to do workshops, and sometimes we used to call it finger dancing, because <laughs> it's kind of like a dance, isn't it? And uh, with the hand movement, water for the 
feet. We offer everything that I've ever, everywhere I've ever been and all the dust I'm carrying on my feet that I have as an offering. And sure, I walk through a field of yak shit on my way to the devil. I'm sorry. You're Scottish. Shite, shite. <laughs> way to the devil. Or we can use some more Latin excrement. <laughs> my mother tongue in such a context. So wonderful. <laughs> you say it? Shite, yeah, we do. <laughs> That's very, very authentic, uh, appropriate use of Scottish dialect. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we have to offer, right? We also have the good things. We might have walking through the forest, pick some wild parsley or fiddleheads or blueberries and brought them as an offering or walk through an orchard, brought some apples or oranges or whatever. But we have the good, the bad and the ugly as part of our path karma. And uh, water for the mouse. Similarly, you know, we may have just have come from an argument with our brother, calling him all kinds of profanities, like, oh, you naughty boy, and even worse. <laughs> or with our girlfriend, or with our mom or dad, or with the king, and we're running away from the king because he plans to walk, walk, cut off our head if he catches us, so... We've also got to offer that, don't we? As well as the beautiful poems we've written and the songs we've written and so on and so forth. And for the heart, similarly. And then the poupe dupe, uh, we offer flowers for everything visible. We offer all objects of sight. Uh, so, you know, when Geshe Rabdin, I remember a very great, great Lama. He was did a six-year retreat. And uh, Dalai Lama, after he came out of a retreat, uh, instructed him to uh, accept Western students, which he reluctantly agreed to do. Very, very wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Lama. And when you walked in his room, his samadhi was so clear. You looked through his eyes and you could see Mount Everest on the other side. <laughs> But as uh, he once said, oh, yeah, well, they, they, he had to go to Europe as part of something Dalai Lama sent him for. And he mentioned, when I walked into the supermarket, I thought, oh, my goodness, gosh. <laughs> he said, I immediately thought, what a great offering and everything visual and then the smells. <laughs> and so the, the, the way these are done as though you're holding them up as offering and your hands, you say you can energize. You're energizing in my belief. I, I haven't seen this in a Tibetan text, but connecting the idea of all of the, if you look at Tibetan acupuncture, which these days they do as uh, they only do a serkab moxa with a golden needle rather than the, 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 the silver needle that uh, is become so popular uh, in the West that they do the golden needle one. But each of those places on the hands being connected to one of the places on the whole body. And we sort of stimulate, you could say, a revive as a kind of healing of the five senses at the same time as offering all objects of the five senses. And it makes us just think of the natural richness and abundance of the world. So we can be sitting there in a cave, like say, 
Um, the first Dalai Lama was a very poor monk who was semi-orphaned at age seven, but he did many, many, many three and six month retreats and a few three year retreats. And as a very poor guy, he's up in some little distant cave, sort of like a millerepa, just gathering nettles and maybe a little bit of barley and perhaps some dried yak meat or dried cheese or something. So very poor, but when you do the offering, it makes you feel, it makes you have a direct access to awareness of the natural abundance of the universe. So I think from merit side, positive energy side, that's an important factor. And of course, you begin with the mantras of Oshodasarva Dhamma before we're doing. It's a connection to how these apples, which I'm offering, <laughs> might look very pure and whatnot. But of course, they are also connected to all of the muddiness and the dirtiness and the dust in the air and so on and so forth. How things, all things are interconnected and the emptiness of them and so on. So as well as a collection of merit, you could say, it's a collection of wisdom, a collection of, of reinforcing our sense of the positive forces of the universe. It's also reminding us uh, ourselves of the uh, emptiness of the way things appear, not according to the deeper nature of their interconnectedness with all things. So something like that. So I think finger hand movements are very important for a kind of a total engaging the three body speech mind uh, with the first three. And then when Yamateka with the first three, sometimes with uh, other tantras, they moved uh, and again, they moved again they up to up to after midway through, and uh, the other five, I think, to how everything in the world is empty of its appearance, but nonetheless still appears, and therefore is part of the natural fuel that we have for our path to enlightenment and happiness. And the hand movements very much, I think, it's like a, an acupuncture treatment or a shiatsu treatment on the palms of your hand. And I remember sometimes when I would visit on my lecture tours across the states, various acupuncture and massage places offer all kinds of uh, treatments and often on the tours, of, very often, uh, in America, these kind of uh, massage, uh, they don't like to call them massage, they like to call them like a healing therapies, because if they're called massage, they may have a little bit of a midnight uh, resonance to them. But originally, of course, massage parlors were healing. And later, people notice they heal not just your aches and pains, but they heal other aspects of aches and pains of the soul, you could say. <laughs> but uh, you know, the first time I experienced one of those was you know, on one of those tours, and we were invited to have a complimentary treatment in one of the healing centers, meaning massage, massage, acupuncture treatments. And the first thing they did was put up hands and feet and have uh, like four people, one on each palm, one on each palm, and one on each sole, just touch and very gently 
very gently stimulate each of the healing points. And then they move from there up the arms and up the legs and then the body and then the head and so on. And, uh, you know, often in America, these are used very much for people recuperating, of course, from car accidents and falling downstairs and, uh, I don't know, getting in fistfights in the bar, <laughs> or as they say in Scotland, the pub, <laughs> and getting some physical damage that requires <laughs> uh, some sort of extraordinary stimulation of the body to get the limbs and body all working well again. So I think the mudras are a little bit like that. And of course, each of the five fingers is associated with one of the five Buddha families and one of the five wisdoms. So it's also activating your connectivity to your five skandhas, your form, your feeling, your perceptions, your momentum or sanskara and your basic consciousness or perceiving consciousness on which these other four are operating or transforming. And so, uh, and the five wisdoms making your anger dissipate a little bit into their like wisdom, your sort of uh, uh, prejudices into the wisdom of equality and so, so forth. I think the mudras stimulate through the movement of the fingers, the five skandhas and the five kleshas, uh, transforming them into allowing the natural radiance as five Buddhas and five, five Buddha natures and five, the radiance of the five Buddha families and the radiance of the five wisdoms shine through the five kleshas and five skandhas, something like that. And of course, uh, as the fingers move, they touch various parts of the palm. So this is, I think, also like stimulating various energy centers of the body. In highest yoga tantra, we may connect them more to the five, four, five, six, or seven chakras, or however many we're utilizing at that particular point of the yoga. But finger dancing for health and enlightenment. <laughs> Uh, Glenn, this has been really wonderful. We got through 25% of, of my questions, so I think we might have to do a, another one in the future if you're willing. While you're on this topic, though, of the uh, tours, the art um, that, that you organized, uh, Mystic Arts of Tibet Tours. Yeah, that name, I started a small company in, in 1985, I think it was. I was asked by uh, one of my great gurus, Dobum Toku, who at the time was director of a Tibet House in Delhi, if I would assist with a Gyume uh, tour, a tour of the Gyume Tantric College, that would have been asked to come to America to participate in an international choral festival. And uh, so choirs from around the world chanting to connect to the sacred, you could say. And so I was asked if I would uh, organize that and make and branch it from just participating in one conference to a tour of Canada and the US, uh, which I was very honored to be requested by Kipji Gilek Rinpoche. And also uh, my own root guru being uh, Kipji Ling Doji Chang, I felt some sort of uh, 
very, and Dobum Toko, I would say, being the one who taught me more on Yamanteka than anyone else, because later, although I received the first teaching from Lama Zopa, and then I received another very wonderful teaching on the um, 94th Canon Tipa's commentary, so the sort of the Kirim Zogzam generation stage completion stage from Gishengao and Darge, the Lama appointed by Dalai Lama. With Dobom Toko, we went through everything syllable by syllable, comma by comma, <laughs> over a period of quite a few months. So I felt very honored to be asked and to help. And it, everyone really loved it very much, and it was very successful, and uh, raised a lot of money for building the new temple, Yume Temple in South India, because uh, this was, uh, you know, in the early 80s, Tibetan lamas Tibet kind of opened under Deng Xiaoping, and it had been completely locked down during the Cultural Revolution. And then Mao died, and when Deng Xiaoping came in, he held a conference and he said, let's have a conference for, for how to go ahead and let's not invite anyone from the gang of four. In other words, the big hardliners <laughs> or any of their associates or any of their patrons. So he held a let's uh, the liberal, you could say, or open uh, someone with a different idea of how China should run. And so that led to all of the Tibetan lamas who were in prison being released and uh, all of the monasteries that had been closed and destroyed. Those who were still standing were allowed to reopen uh, under communist control, of course, and supervision, but still reopen. And some destroyed ones were allowed to rebuild if they could get the funds and the support necessary. And then the border somewhat opened. So lamas would go to Tibet to visit their home, their homeland that they hadn't been in since they left in 1959. And this is in 19, now, 81, 82, 83. And then things really liberalized in about 82 or 83. And many of them, the lamas would come out of Tibet with 20, 30, 40 kids, because back in Tibet, there was zero education and zero Tibetan education. And uh, throughout China, during Cultural Revolution times, people were only allowed to study the little red book, <laughs> the 13 years of the Cultural Revolution. And uh, throughout China, you know, all formal education beyond grade three and grade three, one to three was just really study of Mao's little red book. Everything else happened underground. And so Tibetans, lamas going in would come up with 10, 15, 20 kids. And suddenly these monasteries with a hundred or 200 monks at a thousand or 2000 or 3000 and the same living quarters, the same income. So in the mid eighties, pressure came to what to do about that. And, uh, when these uh, that invitation came as well, now that we've gone from about, I forget the earlier number, but it's increased uh, eight or 10 times, basically. We need a new temple that people can sit. And so they had that invitation and Dobum said that would be great if we could raise money for them to build a new temple. So we did, We and that was about a three or four months tour between Canada and the States. and. They stopped by Japan on the way back, and that was also very good, and they rebuilt their new temple. And then a year later in Toronto, I was requested by someone to bring uh, someone for a choral festival. And so again, having some basic uh, 
funding for it and it started and came through the states we had the good luck that mickey hart of the grateful dead offered to organize something in california and uh, you know, bob thurman tenzin thurman that uh, uh, who had just starting tibet house offered to organize new york and so on and so forth so we were able to keep them on tour for three or four months and that was able to help them to accommodate these I don't know, eight to 10 times explosion of their population in terms of both, uh, you know, temple facilities for the practices and study facilities and so on. And then I was asked with you know, Loseling and then other monasteries. And always the emphasis was the same on using art to spread the message of the beauty of Tibetan culture, because why should Tibet, why should anyone care about Tibetan culture if it's just another of the world's, you know, provincial cultures? Like, of course, it's interesting, but how interesting <laughs> if you're from Iowa or San Francisco or New York City or Albany or something? So to show the art and culture as a living tradition and its beauty and uniqueness. And I think, uh, so I helped organize a half dozen tours like that for different monasteries. And in 86, we created a company in uh, Toronto with a lady friend I was working with, uh, Hilary Sherman, called Mystical Arts of Tibet. And so for the first two tours, we used that. Later, we gave that name to an Atlanta Buddhist organization and based it out of Atlanta. And it still operates under that same name. And I'd say it's brought over 25 or 30 tours over the years. For the first one, I borrowed $25,000 from Richard Gere to get the startup money. And uh, of course, he had long forgotten about it. And I bumped it. And you know, when, I was, when he was coming to Mongolia a few years ago, he heard that I was there. And so he asked his uh, producer to organize for me to get together with him for a day. And and when I did, I thanked him for that original loan. And he says, well, you know, Glenn, that was the best investment I ever made in my life. Because I remember when you borrowed it, you said, yes, you'll like to borrow 25000 but you insist on paying it back with 10%. And I, you said, because you want these things to run as something which is beneficial to everyone. And so we said, at the time, I told you no need for the 10%. And I said, well, like it or not, you're getting it. And that's that. And he said, so anyway, from that time on, I took that and I put it in a special fund. And I used it on the same basis for all of these kind of little uh, llama tours that came over and other requests I had from other organizations for beneficial works. And of course, the 10% doesn't make it bigger, but it uh, covers the basic administrative cost of doing it. So that 25,000 is still out there and has worked in several dozen projects. And so now uh, he said it was my pleasure and honor and nice also to get the money back. Although I never took it myself, but uh, as, a, as an ongoing seed. So he said that was really, really very beneficial. And yeah, he mentioned some of the various projects he had used, including music, music projects to raise money for AIDS awareness and disaster awareness. You know, he's a very sort of active in the use his celebrity and notoriety to draw large audiences to raise awareness and also financial help and medical support and other 
political support for various of his creative ideas, a very, very, very creative man. But I think throughout Central America, now when I, the main one I brought in the early days that I was, was the longest one was from, was from uh, Drepon Losiling. So after the Gume and Kuto tours, and it was to go for a full year with 100 US cities and uh, I think 21, we often say 108 US cities because that turned out to be 108 uh, and 21 in Europe. And it turned out to be 108 in America, 21 in Europe. But the Lama who set it up was uh, Guru, was Dobom Toku's root guru, who originally asked me to bring over Gume back in 85, 86. And he said, now we want, well, he said, now uh, I've had this, I had a dream and a big problem of the world is we've got a problem with the Nagas, the nature spirits. People are polluting the water and polluting the air, polluting the forests and polluting this territories everywhere. And all the Nagas are upset. And when the Nagas are upset, humans have bad dreams because they go to sleep and they can feel the Nagas irritation. And so then they have bad dreams. And so then they wake up all agitated and irritated. So then during the day, they're creating, people are creating negative karma by damaging the uh, environment and thus irritating the Nagas. And they go to bed at night and they're having more negative karma, dreaming about it at night. Then they work up, wake up in a negative state of mind and they even further, and it's just going on and on, increasing. He says, so I think we have to send this tour and we have to do these Naga rituals all over the planet to kind of calm the Nagas down and tell them, oh, don't worry, don't worry. It's just a stage humans are going through. <laughs> He was one of the greatest, greatest lamas I ever met. Kenzer Yeshi Tub was his name. Tub being short for Tubden, but everyone just called Kenzer Yeshi Tub. Very, very great lama. And actually he died just shortly. Uh, it, uh, during this Torah was still on, he passed away. And uh, uh, the Torah was kind of a celebration, I think, in many ways of his, his last great act of as this great Lama. And he was one of the main Lamas, I would say, instrumental in the successful refounding of Drepung Losaling in South India and the success of its programs. And of course, in Tibet, Losaling had been the main monastery, the biggest monastery in all of Tibet and monastery of uh, most of the early Dalai Lamas. And so very, very important. And I think there was a kind of a distinct shift at that time. And amazingly, uh, halfway through that tour, uh, you know, as that tour started, the Dalai Lama was uh, nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. And he was one of the six on the short list. And this came to uh, my attention through Bob Thurman, who said, now Glenn, this opportunity of this tour is a big chance to get people who can and who can uh, vote on who gets the Nobel Peace Prize to actually speak up, because usually most of these people who can speak, uh, vote for the nomination don't ever know about it, and uh, they don't even know they have the they are one of those six. And so there was a guy called Richard Bloom out in California who is a wealthy husband of, I think, is it the. Feinstein, one of the Democrat senators, and uh, he was he was putting a lot of ba backing and support into it. 
as well, sort of spearheading it on, you could say, the multi-corporation level and Bob Thurman on the academics. And so he says, we need someone uh, on the ground. So if you're going through 100 cities here and another 20 or so in Europe, these are the six kind. And you know, then uh, Richard had his office put together a whole package on it and sponsor a printing of a few hundred uh, little giveaway packages. And in each city, try to get the people organizing that city to know, to inform, firstly, to research how many of those six types of human beings do we have in our city? Secondly, are they aware of their voting right? Because most of them didn't. And uh, uh, then to tr try to see if it's possible just to meet with them and have them come meet the Lama, treat them with sort of, sort of some respect and honor and give them a package and uh, make a request. So anyway, I like to think that one of Kenser Yeshitub's final acts <laughs> was to get us on that tour. And of course, Bob Thurman getting us involved in the whole, um, try and get the Dalai Lama a few thousand letters uh, of support on his nomination. And so we started that tour in September of uh, 88. And we ended it in September October of 89, and that's the year Dalai Lama received Nobel Peace Prize. So I like to think that it was the Nagas who gave the Dalai Lama the Nobel Peace Prize, not the multi-corporation organizers, not the professors of history who nominated him, not the former Nobel Peace Prize winners, not the presidents of countries and so on, the, any of the six types, but the Nagas who carried the football across the final line, the finish line. <laughs> Wonderful. Glenn Mullen, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.